The end of Larry Householder. It finally comes 11 months after his indictment. He is a House member no more. It's this week in the CLE, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I am Chris Quinn here with my colleagues, Laura Johnston and Layla Tassi. And after all the delays, this thing just came out of nowhere in 24 hours. It went from not happening to done. We'll be talking about it soon. I hope you're both doing well this morning. Good morning. Gorgeous morning. What was the final vote on the move to oust former House Speaker Larry Householder from the Ohio House and how many votes were needed? Lord Johnston, this was so lopsided. I'm wondering why they didn't do it earlier. They all felt so strongly. Why did it take 11 months? I know, 11 months, right? And the vote was 75-21, and they only needed 66 votes. The House Republicans voted 42-20 in favor of expulsions. The Democrats voted 33-1. to Only Representative Joe Miller of Amherst voted no. But you're right. This this did feel like it was just dragging its feet. I don't know. It wasn't that long ago that Jeremy Pelzer wrote the story that basically said, you know, we're asking again. And the answer is, you know, Bob Cup saying we'll see what happens I, with Householder. I wouldn't be surprised if that story and actually some of the comments even on this podcast didn't didn't actually have a result. But, but sorry. Yeah. Yeah, so the, this was a huge deal. I had no idea that the last time someone was expelled from the state house was in 1857, and a Democrat punched a Republican on the House floor. I told Jeremy that 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 little anecdote was gold, and he's like, "I still don't know what the punch was about." So maybe we'll <laughs> find that out at some point. But yeah, this the idea was that he was expelled for um, disorderly conduct. It's that's what the Ohio Constitution allows someone to expel a member for. It's not defined though. So you can't just point to specific, you know, misdeeds as disorderly conduct. But the argument that, that, you know, these members put forward was, you know, this is the definition of of bribery scandal that you've been uh, implicated in and three people have voted, or sorry, three people have pleaded guilty in. Well, and he kept trying to say that disorderly conduct is defined in criminal law. And they pointed out that, hey, that's not what the standard that applies here. And he kept trying to say that I'm presumed innocent of these charges. And and what they quickly parsed is, right, whether you are found criminally liable or not, your behavior that we know about from this, the stuff that is that mm-hmm. is really beyond dispute is disorderly conduct. We want you gone. I still think that it was a blowout vote, so it might not have made a difference. But I think if on the day before, if he would have shown some humility and apologized to his colleagues for putting them into this difficult situation, he might have won some friends. But his bombastic uh, approach, his kind of political threats to the Democrats, I think he just turned everybody off. And they looked at him like, you're pretty much a monster, pal. We want you out of our our seat. And even though Bob Cup did everything he could to protect him by not calling this thing for a vote, by not moving on it himself, the members usurped him and said, no, 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 we want him gone. He's disgraced the body. Again, why did they wait? I mean, it was so overwhelming. More Republicans than not wanted him gone, despite Bill Seitz, the defender of all things evil, trying so hard to protect him. They got they got obliterated. I mean, this was overwhelming. Yeah, yeah. He's, he's still, so go ahead, Layla. Layla I was just going to say, you know, Bill Seitz saying that removing him for disorderly conduct would be a dangerous precedent. I mean, please, allowing him to stay would be a dangerous precedent. That's <laughs> well. And Nino Vitale, who's one of our favorite uh, podcast subjects, I feel like, you know, likened this to throwing someone in the gulag. You know, like he was like comparing us to like communist 
block countries um, and saying, <laughs> you know, here we don't do that. But one interesting tidbit, I think this expulsion measure only kicks Householder out for the rest of the current legislative session that ends in 2022. Householder says he's open to running again. Um, and that in the meanwhile, he's going to stick up for the people of Ohio. So, you know, I like if he's going to oh, join yeah. all the ousted politicians who just like make ridiculous statements on Twitter and hope that we'll cover them. Um, but no, and back to Chris's point about Larry Householder's defense of himself, we actually put up um, the video is on that the Ohio channel, it's an hour and 40 minutes long. But if you just want the highlights, Pete Cross put a list together of some of the best sections that you can find so you don't have to listen to the entire thing. Although I think Chris enjoyed listening to the entire thing. I didn't get to hear the whole thing because I had to keep working. And every time I turned it down, it was like, man, I want to get back to it. Uh, it, it really was. You know, you, we, look, we're all exposed through our jobs to the public process and how things get done. But you have these rare moments that are pretty electrifying where they finally righted a wrong. He should not be in that body with what he has done that is publicly known in addition to what he's accused of. And the way his colleagues questioned him, they were very polite. There was really not animosity, but the way they questioned him really got at that. And again, I think he he blew it. I mean, he just coming at them the way he did. Uh, he, he's put them all in 11 months of hell. I mean, he led this effort to give a billion dollars of our money to First Energy without need. And they're all on the hook for that. And he should have apologized for marshalling it, even though he denies bribery was a part of it. Layla. Can I, can I ask, what is the deal with Democrat Joe Miller voting no? <laughs> can we just do a whole story about that? I, I got to that part of this, of this and was like, I mean, my brain short-circuited when I read that. I just... What is behind that vote? Because <laughs> this is so cut and dried, and especially for, for Democrats who have been, you know, on the outside looking in of this, this long, drawn-out process of, of ousting him. What, what is he thinking? <laughs> I, yeah, I, I, I don't, have no idea. I don't know. And 20 Republicans uh, uh, still wanted to, to keep him in. As for him running again, Laura, I... There's two things. He did win after the charges mm -hmm. came out because the ballot was already locked Which and he had no opponents. Out. But but I by a year and a half from now, his trial could be approaching. And I'd be surprised if somebody facing what could be a very extended prison term would want to spend time campaigning instead of taking care of his defense. Hey, but so. he's going to use his campaign fund to pay for his defense. Chris got to keep raising money. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> anyway, it's a big day in Ohio. They finally removed the blot that we marveled regularly. They had not taken care of. Everybody had called for him to be gone, including Bob Cup, who could have done something about it. But of course, he shows very little in the way of leadership. It's this week in the CLE. Lauren Layla, I need your help. We've been asking people this week to fill out a survey, a very short survey, uh, about how they discovered this podcast and where they listen to it. We're trying to get it to more people. Uh, we've had some participation in it, but the survey ends tomorrow, and I'm hoping that you putting your voices to it will help people do it. I know you hear from people who listen to this podcast good things. We don't really get negative notes, right? People generally send you good thoughts. Yeah, absolutely. sure. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's very helpful. <laughs> anyway, survey, everybody. All right, we need your help. It's at cleveland.com, the CLE survey. 
it won't take but a couple of minutes and it will help us get this to more people and ensure we're able to keep doing it. Thanks very much. How many measures did the Ohio Senate put into its budget bill that should have been separate pieces of legislation? And what are some of the most egregious ones? Leila Tassi, we had a hard time keeping up with this. I, we, they do this every budget cycle. They sneak some stuff in. But there were so many different mm-hmm. pieces. We kept missing them because I, it, it, it was right. like popcorn and you couldn't. And so many all. were egregious and just. Ugh. So, yeah, the budget bill is supposed to deal with spending and, and the Ohio Constitution bans passing bills that cover a wide variety of topics. It's the single subject rule, and it specifies that no bill shall contain more than one subject, which shall be clearly expressed in its title. Well, that's almost never enforced. And now we're seeing the consequences of that with at least 28 measures shoehorned into this budget bill that have nothing to do with money or the budget. And the topics range from abortion restrictions to overhauling the state's school funding system, Often the language was lifted in whole from other bills and just dumped straight into the budget bill through these massive amendments, often at the very last minute. So Jeremy Pelzer combed through the bill and he discovered some some pretty offensive examples. So for one, we've talked on the podcast about the one that would basically ban municipal broadband Internet programs in Ohio, as well as strip one hundred ninety million dollars in proposed grants to expand broadband infrastructure but there's another that would allow employees, employers to discipline or fire workers who use medical marijuana in violation of workplace policy without violating the Ohio civil rights law. Uh, there's another that would remove Governor Mike DeWine's budget proposal to create a database on police use of force and officer-involved shootings. Again, like, what does this have to do with the budget? Um, (laughs) there would be what there's one that would put new licensing restrictions on clinics that provide surgical abortions. Uh, there's one that would allow Ohio doctors, hospitals, and insurance companies to refuse to provide or pay for a medical service if it violates their moral, ethical, or religious beliefs. What does this have to do with the budget? And, you know, perhaps the one that makes me the most angry, this was the one that like when I read it, I can always feel like my blood pressure rising when I <laughs> I've, seen that. I've, I've, that. I've actually experienced that in person. <laughs> this is the this is an amendment to require asset tests for food stamp recipients and cut off mm. SNAP benefits for households with two thousand two hundred fifty dollars or more in savings. Recipients would also have to report every change in income worth more than five hundred dollars, such as extra work shifts or getting getting odd jobs. And then meanwhile, they add this amendment that would provide a 5% state income tax cut that largely benefits the wealthy. It would save middle income residents just $22 a year, while Ohioans making more than $500,000 would see a tax cut of more than $1,700 per year. So, I mean, this is uh, (laughs) staggering, staggering in the scope of things that they just crammed into what is supposed to be a narrowly focused budget bill. I mean, so many things, you know, across the spectrum, dealing with, you know, far right ideology and um, and really just just cranking down on the on the poor at a time when, you know, they need as much, you know, su- assistance and, and, and support as possible. It's just disgusting. 
Laura Johnston. Hi, I was I was editing this story yesterday and I put in all of the numbers because I was like, I cannot keep track of these. Like, I feel like we need to number these. And I was astounded at the number we'd already written about, right? I'm like, we covered the heck out of this. And I got to give hats off to Jeremy Pelzer and Laura Hancock for finding all of this stuff in the budget, right? And so many of these things are major issues that they just literally lifted from other bills that weren't going to get passed and shoved them in the budget. I mean, there were a few really small things like, you know, naming a park at, I think, Malabar Farms or something, things that they were just like, whatever. But some of these are, these things deserve public input and, and lots of hearings. Well, we should say that, that the legislative process in Ohio was supposed to be a piece of legislation, single subject piece of legislation is introduced. It goes to a series of committees, proponents, opponents get to talk about it before it goes to the floor. By putting into the budget, you deprive people of that, except in cases where they tried to get it passed and couldn't. One of those is putting the parties of Supreme Court candidates on the ballot. It's actually something our editorial board supported when it was being discussed as a bill. They couldn't get it passed, so they cram it into the budget. That's just not appropriate. I, I would imagine there'll be lawsuits about this because it completely violates the single subject rule. And because it's a budget bill, um, there is a line item veto that, that DeWine can surgically remove anything that offends him, which he's not really able to do with other bills. It's up or down, but you're just not supposed to do this. And I, and I said this the other day, Matt Dolan, uh, the state senator from Chagun Falls, has a key role in putting together the budget. And I'm surprised that he's attached to this because he knows better and he knows that this is not the way to get legislation done. He's, he's rumored to be thinking about a run for Senate. I would think this would be a negative for him if he does that. Maybe in the reconciliation process, he'll stand up and say, let's make this a budget. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Let's talk about some other Ohio legislation. What does the anti-hazing measure passed by the Ohio Senate Wednesday prohibit specifically? What's the latest on legalized sports gambling, which is suddenly in an urgent state? And what about the name image likeness bill for college athletes that will let them make some money while they're in college? Laura Johnston, what is all this about? So they all passed the first step yesterday. So it was a packed day at the state house. But um, Laura uh, Hancock wrote all these stories. The anti-hazing bill is known as Collins Law, named after an Ohio State student. Uh, took a little while to pass after a Bowling Green hazing incident. It kind of took new um, import in the state house. This would increase criminal penalties for hazing and require a statewide plan to prevent the acts at colleges. It makes teachers, consultants, alumni, school volunteers of any kind could be subject to the hazing laws. Right now, it's only administrators, employees, and faculty members, and it would increase this penalty for recklessly participating or permitting hazing to a second-degree misdemeanor instead of a fourth degree. The, the goal is to change the culture of colleges throughout Ohio by forcing people to recognize how serious hazing is. Um, for sports betting, the Senate passed it 30 to 2. Um, Matt Dolan, who we've talked about on this podcast already, uh, abstained because his family owns the Indians. But this legalizes betting on professional college, Olympic, and other sports. It, it meets out licenses to different kinds of facilities, 25 type A licenses for online gaming businesses, 33 type B for brick and mortar casinos and type C licenses get 20 for self-service terminals. There's actually some pushback from this from 
a diverse group. The Fair Gaming Coalition of Ohio represents bars and restaurants that sell Ohio lottery products. They say it kind of gives the good stuff to a small group like the casinos that already get special treatment and they don't think that's fair. And then I believe some public education advocates say that they won't get enough money out of this because of they allow like coupons. If you give someone a deal to start betting, then that money gets deducted from the money that the, the schools would end up getting. And then in the name image likeness, this is really swift happening for Ohio State House. It's been like a month since they talked about it. It could take effect July 1st, but it would allow student athletes to financially profit from product endorsements, social media influencing, private lessons, or autograph sessions. And this is following about 16 other states that have similar bills. Well, the the rush is because right. in recruiting, the 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 students are going to go to the states where they can make some money, and and so, that's when the other states start is July first. So we don't want to be late. Yeah, so they're trying to make sure that that recruits that might come to the you know the beloved Ohio State football <laughs> team don't end up in a state that competes with them. It's it, what's interesting is all three of these bills we're talking about deal with colleges. It's uh, yeah, that's true. The hazing, the name image likeness and the sports gambling. I mean, let's face it, people will be betting on Ohio state. Uh, the, 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 what's the sports gambling got hung up badly a couple of years ago over the debate over which agency should oversee it, the lottery commission or the casino folks, uh, the the fact that it's fast tracked now, it's interesting that you're seeing this other opposition that people are saying, wait, the casinos are getting too much. There is an anti-casino feeling among some legislators, because you'll remember the legislature would not pass casino gambling. And so the casino people went to the voters and they created their their own system that the legislature had no say in. There's still resentment about that. Mm-hmm. So they don't want to give the casinos more money. It's one of the reasons we have Russinos to, to compete with them. Uh, it'll be interesting to see how quickly all of that stuff passes. And if DeWine signs it. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. What's the lineup for the Cleveland mayor's race now that the deadline for filing is passed? And how many people from the past are making bids to return to Cleveland City Council? Lila Tassi on the mayor's side, there's two two people on that that are complete unknowns. We're going to have to figure out what they're thinking. <laughs> they have no name recognition. No one knows who they are. And on the city council side, Craig Willis's name is there. That guy was in council back when I covered council. I know. What's and I got, I got to admit, I mean, I, I go a fair ways back here. Uh, you know, I have some uh, a good deal of institutional memory, but I, I didn't recognize that name. That was before my time at, at City Hall. Well, so in the mayor's race, you know, not not a lot of surprises. Lineup is kind of what we predicted for months. We've got eight candidates. There's Cleveland City Council President Kevin Kelly. Uh, Cleveland City Councilman Bashir Jones, State Senator Sandra Williams, former mayor and former Congressman Dennis Kucinich, former Cleveland City Councilman Zach Reed, nonprofit executive Justin Bibb, West Park attorney Ross DeBello, Cuyahoga County Deputy Sheriff Landry Simmons, who's the lone Republican in the race. So Bibb and DeBello, Reed and Williams have already had their petitions validated. They've been in for a while. So they're on the ballot in the next couple of days. The Board of Elections will be working to validate the other petitions. But, you know, it's been two decades since the mayor's race didn't include an incumbent. So it's a crowded field with a couple political newcomers like Bibb and DeBello. As far as fundraising goes, you know, Kelly is is leading the pack. He's raised $500,000 so far, but, you know, he's widely considered kind of the favorite of the establishment and the business community. 
uh, you know, some other interesting facts here. If Williams were to win, for example, she would be the first black woman mayor in the city's history. That's so exciting to think about. Then there's Kucinich with his storied career and his legacy as the boy mayor who saved Muni Light and then got ousted by voters when the city defaulted on its debt. So this is going to be an exciting, uh, exciting primary. Yeah, from it's cool. boy mayor to geriatric mayor. The, <laughs> oh, the, um, the, the bellow, though, the bellow and Landry. I mean, if you think about this, <laughs> you know, it, it, it's a mayor's race. Nobody knows who they are. No. I mean, we've never right. heard of them before. It's like, where, wh- what possibility do they have? I know you don't need a lot of votes to get through to the to the runoff. Zach Reed did it with something like 7,000. But still, who, you know, who are they and what are they thinking? What, why do they think they can compete with people like Kucinich and Zach Reed and and Bashir Jones, who have been in the thick of it and have built some name recognition. Right. Especially for, uh, you know, Landry Simmons, who is a Republican. I mean, yeah, he'll get through to the, you know, to the runoff, but for sure, obviously, but he won't stand a chance against a Democrat. Well, in, no, but it, he won't, but he won't make it through the, the runoff because it's a nonpartisan. He, oh, he that's right. Oh, thank you. You corrected me. I, I forgot that. Immediately. You know, I think political watchers so far are expecting right now that it would be Kucinich and Bashir Jones, but a lot can happen in three months. Who knows who's going to prevail here? Uh, I thought Seth Richardson had a very interesting observation that Kucinich, wherever he was on day one of his announcement, every day after that, he falls because as people learn more, they're going to be looking elsewhere. I thought that was an interesting insight. All right. So on the council side, there's there's four different people who were long ago council people, a couple of them when I covered city council, which is like, I'm ancient. So it's a long time ago. <laughs> who, who are they and what's going on there? So TJ Dow, Stephanie House, Nelson Cintrone and Craig Willis all have submitted petitions. And these are council members who are seeking a political comeback. House was appointed in 2008 after the death of legendary councilwoman Fannie Lewis who represented the Huff-based ward for nearly 30 years. Then T.J. Dow defeated House in a special election to serve out the rest of Fannie Lewis's term, and Dow served two more terms and then was narrowly defeated by a handful of votes in 2017 by Bashir Jones, who is now running for mayor, so that, that seat is becoming available. And then Cintrone was first elected in 1997, and he was the first Latino to serve on city council Then he was defeated by Joe Santiago in 2005. That's another blast from the past. We haven't heard Joe Santiago's name in years. I don't even think he lives in the area anymore. Then Brian Cummins held that seat for a while um, until he was defeated by Jasmine Santana in the 2017 election. And in that election, Cintrone also was a candidate. So this is his second attempt at a comeback. Willis was elected to city council in 1989, as you said, uh, representing an east side ward based in Glenville. And he was reelected twice, but defeated in 2001 by current councilman Kevin, uh, I'm sorry, current councilman uh, Kevin Conwell following controversy over uh, Willis's residency. He's running against Ken Johnson and 14 others in Ward 4. We all know, obviously, what Ken Johnson is going through and why there's such He's facing such opposition. I mean, that's a hotly contested race. So it is a crowded election season. The only unopposed members of council are Anthony Hairston in Ward 10 and Brian Casey in Ward 16. So they're just going to be kicking back 
<laughs> chilling as this <laughs> all unfolds. What, what's Sorry. interesting about Willis and Cintrone is there, there are people that pay attention to City Hall who think that the council doesn't do the work that they used to do, that it's a much less experienced council. They're not doing their watchdog role. And Cintron and Willis were around when the council was of a more professional level and did pay greater attention. Willis was not a firebrand in any way, shape, or form. I think people would have a hard time remembering anything that he stood for. But Cintron was regarded as almost the Hispanic mayor. I mean, even people who didn't live in his ward looked to him for for some leadership uh, and he was part of the inner circle of the council leadership for a time it'd be interesting to see if they they got in and and restored some of the uh, professional approaches to things that you have now because if you pay attention to committee hearings and things now nobody's really paying attention to what's going on it doesn't seem like the council does its watchdog role at all so interesting to, to see. Uh, so are there other races with that as many as are in the Ken Johnson race? Oh, or is good it... question. Let me, I should look back on the list, but I mean, obviously Ken Johnson is, is, uh, you know, and it's, it's kind of astounding to me that Ken Johnson would, <laughs> would even run again. That takes such, you know, hubris <laughs> to, to continue. Yeah. Kind of like Larry Householder like, saying he's going to run again. Uh, who's running for Kevin Kelly's seat? There are too many candidates to keep track of, but please, everyone, go check out Bob Higgs' story on Cleveland.com. Okay, we'll, we'll leave that one there. <laughs> You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Why aren't libraries in Northeast Ohio accepting book donations for the sales that help fortify their budgets? Lord Johnston, I know the Cleveland Heights Library was taking books until two weeks ago, but they stopped. The Cuyahoga County Library is not taking them. The Shaker Heights Library isn't taking them. Why not? Yeah, there's not a lot of libraries taking books right now. A lot of them actually stopped more than a year ago during COVID when it first broke out and all the libraries closed and everyone was worried about uh, the disease spreading on surfaces. So both uh, the Cuyahoga County Library and the Cleveland Public Library haven't been taking um, anything since then. But some of them, you're right, like the Heights Library, were taking them, but they just got overwhelmed because they had so many books from so many people decluttering their houses. Um, some other people listening might have done the same thing where they're like, I am just using this time to clear out my house. The good news is the Kids Book Bank is still taking donations. And we have um, the story up from Cameron Fields that has where you can give those. They have a bunch of donation spots around the county. So what are the libraries recommending? Do people just send their books to the landfill because they can't take them? I hope not. I mean, you can give them to thrift stores and Goodwill and stuff. They do send them there. But to hold tight because they will be accepting books again soon. Some of them started selling again. They haven't had their mega sales yet, but they are like hosting once every Friday some of these um, libraries. Meanwhile, they they hope to start again this summer or in the fall hosting regular book sales. And that goes to the bottom line of the libraries. I mean, very few any books that you're going to donate are going to end up on the shelves of the library to borrow. It's people that go and buy them for a quarter or five bucks for a giant bag. Okay. We'll have to see when they restart that. Otherwise, I think people who decluttered will start leaving them, them out the by little, the curb. The little free libraries, right? Like the ones that you see on the side of the, on the sidewalk. 
Those are kids' there. books, though. I mean, if There's people are getting up books oh, yeah. there, you can also sell them to used bookstores. I mean, I mean you, you won't get a ton for them, but at least they're out of your house and you have a little bit of money. In Lend them to everyone. Then you can take them to the beach and the pool and you won't worry about getting the water spots on them. <laughs> okay. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. What are Frank Jackson and other American mayors seeking in a letter they just sent to President Joe Biden about gun violence? Leila Tassi, every city in America, it seems, is experienced when, what Cleveland is experiencing, a rapid increase in gun violence. Yes. What are the mayors? The mayors just raising their hand saying, we can't do it on our own. We need help. Yeah. I mean, Cleveland is in the throes of a second consecutive record-breaking year of violence. So Jackson has joined 27 other mayors of big cities. They're all members of the United States Conference of Mayors in writing this letter to Biden asking for help dealing with the gun violence epidemic that is just surging right now in, in everywhere. The, the letter basically says that there are steps that the federal government is uniquely, uniquely qualified to take that would enhance the anti-violence measures that are already underway. So specifically, they say Biden could use the platform of the presidency to emphasize that reducing gun violence is a public health imperative he could push for meaningful and common sense gun control legislation and that the federal government could implement implement universal background checks, close loopholes in gun laws, ban assault weapons and, and promote policies that keep guns out of the hands of people who are dangerous to themselves and others. Of course, you know, these are not easy. <laughs> these are not easy solutions. It goes without saying that the pro-gun lobby would stand in the way of every one of these suggestions and that if it were as easy to implement these ideas as the letter kind of makes it seem, Biden probably would have done it already. But but the mayors are right. Jackson has said time and again, the fact that it's so easy to get a gun is the reason for the pro proliferation of guns on the streets. And, and it's a key factor driving the violent crime that we're seeing. And Cleveland has been swatted back time and time and time again. Every time the city has tried to, to take this matter into its own hands with assault weapons bans and gun registries, it always seems to get the rug pulled out from from under them. And and as a consequence, we're now outpacing last year's record-breaking homicide rate. By mid-June last year, we were at 67 homicides, and we're already at 76. Wow. So okay. I don't blame them for putting their voices together and, and reaching out. Um, but, you know, it's a long we'll shot. We'll see what they get. Okay. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Thanks, Laura. Thanks, Layla. Thanks to everybody who listens to this podcast. We'll be back tomorrow to wrap up a week of news.